You're listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Good morning. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Happy Thanksgiving. So good to be with you. My name's Sam. I serve as one of the leaders here at the church. And uh, today we're continuing our series, Working Through the Book of Acts. And so if you have a Bible handy, whether in the pew in front of you, if you brought one along, digital or paperback, uh, you can turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to hang out in the last section of Acts chapter 2 together today. And I've really been enjoying this series that we've been in this fall, walking through just the first two chapters so far. Pastor David kicked it off a few weeks ago and uh, walked us through Acts chapter 1, the ascension of Jesus. But he also really helped us to locate the story of the church within the grander narrative of Scripture, of the story of God. And so if you didn't hear that message, I'd encourage you to go back and hear that on our podcast or on YouTube, Acts chapter 1, and kind of setting up the whole series. Then last week we looked at Pentecost, the start of Acts chapter 2, where we looked at the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling among, dwelling in the early church. And uh, we looked at two images. We looked at wind and fire and what we can learn about the Spirit from those. And we landed at the end of the sermon. We talked about this ancient prayer that Christians had been praying. This really simple prayer where we say, just come Holy Spirit. This recognition of his presence. And then today we're going to be looking at Acts, the end of Acts chapter 2, where this new community of Jesus followers is beginning to form. Acts chapter 2 verse 42. Now, before we get there, just a quick note about kind of stylistically how Luke writes. And he does this in both of his books, in his book titled Luke, as well as in the book of Acts, is he has this habit of kind of writing about the different events that are taking place. So he says, this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and they were in the upper room, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he has these sort of summary paragraphs, where he kind of summarizes the culture of what's going on in around the events that he just talked about, that just took place. And so this is what we're about to read, the very first summary paragraph in the book of Acts. And so would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? We'll go Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. Here's what it says. Speaking of the church, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's pray together, and then we'll unpack those verses. Well, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we recognize your presence with us here today as we've sang these great songs of praise to you, as we're in community with one another, and now as we hear your word preached. And God, I pray that you would speak to us through your spirit. These people here today, we don't need to hear more words from me, from Sam. We desire, we need to hear from you, God. And so would you speak through your word? In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. Well, according to Rodney Stark, who was a sociologist, he says that the growth of the early church is arguably the greatest, most remarkable sociological movement in all of history. In AD 40, there was roughly 1,000 Christians in the Roman Empire. And by AD 350, there was 30 million. 
It's remarkable. It's estimated that nearly 50% of the population converted to, the, to Christianity, to the Christian faith, in just 300 years. Wow! Talk about a church living on mission. In his book, The Triumph of Christianity, Rodney Stark writes this, Jesus was a teacher and a miracle worker who spent nearly all his brief ministry in this tiny and obscure province of Galilee, often preaching to outdoor gatherings. A few listeners took up his invitation to follow him, and a dozen or so became his devoted followers. But when he was executed by the Romans, his followers probably numbered no more than a few hundred. And then he goes on to ask this question. How is it possible that this obscure Jewish sect would become the largest religion in the world? Like, how did it happen? Three years of ministry in the middle of nowhere, and after this gruesome death on a cross, his followers would grow and grow and would eventually bring the Roman Empire to its knees. And on top of that, the early church didn't have anything that we in the modern age think is essential for church growth. They didn't have any church facilities. They didn't have a social media presence. They didn't have a live stream service. They didn't even have the the finished New Testament. Followers of Jesus were often deeply misunderstood. They were persecuted. Some were called to give up their lives, to be martyred for their faith. Yet they loved, and they served, and they prayed, and they blessed one another. And slowly but consistently, over 300 years, they brought the Roman Empire to its knees. How did it happen? Well, empowered by the Holy Spirit, they loved each other. They loved each other, and they loved the world around them in these beautiful and profound ways. See, this isn't something that they did in their own strength. But the Spirit of God was alive in each person. We talked about that last week with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Each person was a carrier of God's presence, was being transformed into this new humanity, a countercultural society of people who'd experienced the love of Jesus, who'd experienced the forgiveness of Jesus, and it compelled them to reorient their entire lives, the way they spent their money, the way they spent their time, the people they hung out with, and it was so compelling to the world around them. They lived this life of devotion, devoted to one another, and they were devoted to to Jesus and his way. Look again at the, the opening of those few verses we just read together. Luke says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This word devoted here, it comes from the Greek word proskatero, which means steadfast and single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. In other words, they weren't half in, half out with their devotion. They were deeply committed to Jesus and to this new community of faith. For them, the Christian faith wasn't just something they came to once a week at 11.30, probably showed up more 11.40, 11.45, drank some coffee together, talked to a few people, sang some songs, heard, heard a, a message preached, and then went on their way. No, it, it required following Jesus, engaging in this Christian community, it required that they reoriented their whole lives They devoted their entire lives to practicing their faith, daily meeting together, daily reaching souls for Jesus, scheduling everything they had, bearing each other's burdens, giving to the poor and to the needy. I don't know about you, but but when I look at this this, uh, description of the early church, here in Acts 2.42, but but also all throughout the book of Acts, in a lot of ways it looks so different than my experiences with the church in the West, in Canada or North America where we find ourselves. Like, if I read those five verses and then I showed up at at a church in North America, I think I'd be kind of surprised. Like, it's not that anything we do when we gather is bad, but I think I'd come and I'd say, is this it? Like, what about the deep devotion that I read about in the book of Acts? 
What about this deep devotion, like sharing everything we have, caring for each other's needs, bearing each other's burdens? Why does Acts 2, 42 to 47 look so different than most of our experiences with the church in the West? Well, John Tyson, who's a pastor and a thinker, writer from New York City, he points out that by and large, our society is a preference-based society, while the early church lived out this commitment-based community. Preference-based versus commitment-based community. See, community is a bit of a buzzword in our society. It has been for quite some time, but especially with the rise of social media, things like Reddit and online communities. But but I don't think our culture's vision of community is the same type of community that we see forming here in the book of Acts. Most of our communities are based on preference. We join a community because we have shared hobbies with someone or interests or or political views or, or we all like cars or we're all dog parents or we're you know, coffee fanatics. And so we set up these Facebook groups or we gather together with these communities, but, it, but if, if we change our preferences, then we just stop coming together. And that's not what we see here in, in, in the book of Acts. You know, we even see that today happening within the context of the church. People gather together for, for church, they, they, they commit to a church, and, and then they, they decide, they, based on preferences, based on music or, or preaching style, these various things, they they, they disconnect. They stop gathering with the church based on a desire to go for brunch at Cora's on Sunday morning or, or White Spot or, or because of sports schedules. Our commitment to, to gathering with, with other Christians so often just fits around our other day-to-day schedule, our busy schedules. Here's how Acts 2.42 to 47 would read in a preference-based society if we were reading in the new preference version, okay? They studied the apostles' teaching when they had time. <laughs> They went to fellowship when they could fit it in. They prayed when they needed something and they got coffee together every now and then. They were content without and had low expectations for signs and wonders in their midst. They sometimes talked about generosity but they kept all their possessions for themselves. Two out of five Sundays they came together for corporate worship. They didn't invite people into their homes and rarely revealed their hearts. They were largely irrelevant to all the people and occasionally someone was randomly saved. But these early church, they weren't preference-based. They were committed to one another. They were devoted to one another, to Jesus and to his way. And who were these early Christians? They were this incredibly diverse group. You know, remember in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost takes place, and there's this massive festival going on in the city. And so people are gathered from all over the world. There's Asians and Egyptians and Romans and Judeans. And all of these people are from different cultures and different backgrounds, and they're coming together and they're devoting themselves to one another. They didn't have a common culture. They didn't have a common temperament or personality. They didn't come from a common class. And yet these people were immediately in each other's homes every night. Their allegiance to Jesus as king required that they reorient everything in their lives. Becoming a Christian, this devotion to him, it didn't look like just adding something to their lives, adding weekly church attendance or even a community group gathering once a week. They were embracing a whole new way of life and it required devotion. So they were devoted to one another. But what, what exactly were they devoted to? Well, I think if we look at Luke's uh, description of the early church, we can break it into three main categories. And because preachers love alliteration, I chose three categories that start with L, okay? Easy to remember. Uh, some work from Tim Keller was really helpful in forming these thoughts. But I, I would say they were committed to, to learning, to loving, and to liturgy. They were committed to learning together, to loving one another, and then to an intentional 
liturgy. Okay, first, learning. They studied the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to it. In other words, they dug deep into the teachings of the New Testament. They read it. They heard it preached. They reflected on it. They let it shape their their day-to-day lives. And and sadly, I I think that in our culture, in our day and age, our, our society is becoming increasingly biblically illiterate. Even a lot of Christians don't really know their Bibles at all, don't understand the meta-narrative of Scripture, the story of God. Don't understand the context of some really hard passages in Scripture. And so when questions are raised, or someone kind of stands up against your faith, or you, you hit tremendous suffering, for many, their faith begins to crumble and fall apart because they don't have a solid understanding of Scripture or don't know even where to look for the questions, the answer to the questions that they have. In many ways, I think that's a failure of the church. It's a failure to really teach the Bible effectively. And I know a lot of people who were raised in contexts where you don't ask questions. Because to ask questions is to doubt, and doubting is bad, and so don't ask questions. And, and can I just say that you are so welcome to doubt here? I think embracing doubt and working through your doubt is such a key part of following Jesus. There was this mantra or slogan in the church for a number of decades. It actually still is present in some circles. And it goes like this. The Bible said it. I believe it. That settles it. And, and I think that works, for, for, that works great and all until you experience intense suffering or the death of a child. Or you read about genocides in the Old Testament. Or you struggle to understand what the scripture says about sexuality and sexual ethics. And without a deep understanding of Scripture and the story of God, these unanswered questions can begin to unravel our faith. And it can happen so quickly. As a church, we want to do whatever we can to help you answer the questions that you're asking. Do you know, Christians have been wrestling with a lot of these questions for for centuries. And most of the time, the most difficult questions, they can't just be answered in a quick five-minute conversation after church. But let's journey together. Let's explore, let's ask the hard questions and, and, and seek to understand what scripture, what God would have to say about them. Through my Christian walk, there's been so many moments where I've struggled with doubt, where I've struggled to understand why God's moved to the way he has or done the things he's done. And I've been so thankful for a church family around me who's helped me to walk through those seasons of doubt. And it strengthened my faith. It's so important to study scripture and not just to do it alone in a vacuum but to study scripture in community. We're actually running a few classes right now that I think are so helpful for this exact thing. Um, we're running a class, Pastor David talked about it a few weeks ago, called 10 Hard Questions. We're about three weeks in, but you can join at any point. And we're looking at some of the biggest questions that people have about the Christian faith. Questions about the exclusive claims of scripture, of Christianity. About how Christianity works alongside, you know, sexuality and the LGBTQ plus community. Questions about racism and slavery and how a loving God can, can, can allow for suffering to happen. And if you're struggling with some of these questions, I can't recommend this class more highly. I'd encourage you, come on out on Tuesday nights. Our young adults ministry is also running a class teaching the basics of theology and how to read scripture, the various different forms of, of scripture. We're also running something um, called Alpha, 
on uh, Wednesday nights. We kicked it off last week, and apparently it was just a fantastic kickoff. Lots of people from all different backgrounds coming together, sitting around a table and talking about life and worldviews and the Christian faith and what it means for us today. And there's still time to start, to go to Alpha. And so if you're exploring, if you're wondering, go on out, check it out, have some food and, and dialogue. And then every single week on Sunday mornings, we are committed as a church to sit under the authority of Scripture, to learn together, to seek to unpack these verses and and these chapters and these stories, to really learn and to grow. So the early church, they were committed to, they were devoted to learning. They were also devoted to loving. Look at verse 44. Here's what it says. It says, they were together. Okay, I I wanna unpack this strength in those few words. They were together. See, there's a later place in this passage where where the text talks about that they met together, they gathered together, but right here it starts with saying they were. See, together wasn't so much something that they did as something that they were. They did come together. They did meet together, but more than that, they were together. They had become together. See, where did they meet? Everywhere. It says in the temple courts, in their homes. When did they meet? Constantly. Relentlessly, it says every day, these Christians came together every single day in the temple courts, but they couldn't get enough of each other. And so they'd also meet in the evenings in their homes. Okay, why is this significant? And what does this have to do with love and them loving each other? Well, these people were hungry for Christian community. They loved being together. Their love for one another caused them to gather as often as they possibly could. Regular life was seen as an interruption from being together with the body of Christ. They were previously apart. They were divided because of race or class or where they were from or their sect of Judaism. But now, because of Jesus, they had been bound together. They were previously just individuals, but now together they had formed the body of Christ. And they couldn't keep from gathering. Now, I'd imagine that some of you have experienced pastors and preachers like me who have stood up and guilted people into gathering, you know, those who come on Christmas and Easter and said things like, hey, why don't you come every week? Or, or why don't you come to this gathering or, or this thing or, or this class and that sort of thing? And there's not necessarily anything wrong with encouraging people to gather together. You know, even Paul the Apostle later on, he, he, he says not to forsake the gathering together. He urges the church to gather, but not here. In this text, there was no need for anyone to stir them on to gather. They, they, they just couldn't help themselves. Why? Because they'd experienced something that they just couldn't get enough of. They'd experienced this spirit-empowered community, and there was nothing like it. And this love, this desire to gather together, it's really a sign of life in the church. When people experience real life, when they experience love and, and, and the welcome of, of Christian community, You don't have to work to compel them to come back. It's the natural byproduct of experiencing this life and love. Just like you don't have to tell a baby to cry when it's born. It cries because there's life in its lungs. There's breath in its lungs. It's the same thing with the church. When there's life, when there's love, people naturally gather. And and that's why I I love living in this community. I love living in in the Tri-Cities. I live in Port Moody, right by Rocky Point. And I regularly see people gathering from our church you know, in the summertime in, at, at Rocky Point Park, walking together or in restaurants, eating together or community groups gathered. Sometimes I'll see people even from our Rail City campus because they're there in Port Moody, cleaning up streets together. And I love that. See, the gathering of the church isn't just something we do for 90 minutes on a Sunday, but it's living together, serving in the food pantry, in community groups, praying together, spurring each other on, 
That's what we see in the early church, and that's what we see in pockets happening here, even in our local church. Well done, church. Okay, as the passage unfolds, we see that their love for one another, that togetherness, it led them to take action. Look at verse 45. It says that they sold their possessions and gave to everyone as they had need. Did you catch that? They sold their property and possessions and gave to anyone as they had need. Now that sounds radical. And at first glance, it almost sort of feels like a kind of Christian communism. Like, what exactly is going on here? How did it work? Are you saying that someone became a Christian and kind of entrance into the family of God was selling everything they had, giving the money to the apostles, and the apostles to distribute to the other people? No, that's not what's going on here. Bible scholars across the board agree that what Luke is describing here is not a one-time selling of everything and giving it to the church. No, this is a posture of the heart. And it was completely voluntary. When somebody had and another person didn't have, they just gave freely. You know, many who were more wealthy and had properties would give to those who were struggling to meet ends meet, who were struggling to make payments. Here's the bottom line. Their devotion to Jesus, and in turn their devotion to one another, had a direct impact on their pocketbooks, on what they spent their money on. See, they no longer viewed their stuff as just for them, something to hoard. No, they gave freely of themselves. They lived out this kind of extravagant generosity, love without limits. When, when Jorley and I were first married, we were, um, for lack of better words, very poor. <laughs> we were working in ministry. I was making very, not much more than minimum wage, and she was actually a full-time student at the time. And there were a number of months in those first few years where we actually didn't make enough in the month to pay our bills. And we would just pray to God and say, we feel like this is what you're calling us to do, what you're asking us to do in this city, in this time. And there were a number of times where God provided in these miraculous ways. And oftentimes, it happened through his church, through people in his church, uh, oftentimes older people because they had more money. But, but giving to us in really beautiful and generous ways. Sometimes it would be that we would get an envelope and, uh, and it would have a, a note inside encouraging us and saying, hey, we just sense the Lord calling us to give to you. Sometimes it would just be an envelope or, or sometimes it would be a grocery card or a gas card. And just at the right time, when we needed uh, God to come through for us, he often did it through his church, the generosity of his people. And, and, and that's something that we really try to do as a church corporately. It's through things like, uh, the food pantry, through things like the community response offering that we take up once a month. And it's so cool to see families, to see kids coming up and putting money into, the, into that, that fund and, and for us together to try to do it. But it's not only something that we do once a month. This posture of the heart, this radical generosity that we see in scripture is an open-handed posture with our finances, with our stuff, something that we should live out every day of the week where we say, God, this is what you've given me, what you've blessed me with. How would you have me steward this? They were devoted to learning. They were devo- devoted to loving. And then they were devoted to liturgy. Now, this isn't a word that we often use in our church, but I needed another L word, and so this is where we got. But, but no, the, the word liturgy, it refers to the order of service in a more traditional church oftentimes, a liturgical church where you sit, stand, kneel, sit, stand, kneel. And when I say liturgy, there, there's, to some of you, it may, may even feel religious or stuffy. 
You might think about smells and bells, but, but I needed this L word. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but but, but I, I want to look at the idea of liturgy because it's not only the Catholics or the Anglicans that have a liturgy, that have an intentional order of service. No, even we as CA Church, we have an intentional liturgy. If you've been here for a few weeks, you would know. When we gather together, there's certain things that we regularly do. We'll have a call to worship. Someone will often read scripture like Melanie did here today. We'll sing a few songs. Um, sometimes we'll have baptisms. We'll, we'll kind of greet each other with, in, in community. Someone will preach from the Bible. We'll drink coffee, sometimes eat food together. That's a liturgy. We have a liturgy. But more importantly than that for this point is we all have a liturgy of our lives, a way that we order our lives, that we rhythm our lives. And, and, and our lives aren't the same. My life, the order of my life probably looks different than yours does. But we all have certain habits. We have certain rituals, things that we do on a daily basis and things that we do on a weekly basis. And studies show that these liturgies of our lives, these things we do regularly, they have this profound ability to shape the kind of people we're becoming. There's a sociologist named James K.A. Smith, and he describes humans like this. He calls them liturgical animals. In other words, he's saying that, that we are people of habit. And these habits, they don't have a neutral effect on the people we're becoming. They shape us. They form us. And that's not a good thing or a bad thing. It just is. It's just a thing. But if that's true, then the things that we spend our time on are profoundly important. The way that we rhythm our lives, the liturgies of our lives, the things we think about, the things that we do. A lot of sociological studies would say that, that actually practice, that liturgy, the way you order your life, is more important in forming the kind of person you become than even knowledge is. The way you practice your life, order your life. And there were a number of core practices that the early church embraced, ways that they ordered their lives, intentional rhythms, or you could say liturgies. Verse 46, it says they met regularly in the temple courts. It's kind of like this. They gathered for large group gatherings where they worshiped and, and where they broke bread. That's communion, what we'll do in just a moment. Where they prayed together. See, meeting with other Christians wasn't an add-on to the Christian life. It was core to living out their faith. It's where they learned it's where they encouraged one another. It's where they lifted their voice in praise to God. I came across a study a couple weeks ago from, uh, from Harvard. It was done in 2020. And this study showed that people who attend religious services at least once per week are significantly less likely to die of what they call death of despair, which includes suicide, drug overdose, and alcohol poisoning. See, according to their research, weekly church attendance lowers the risk of all these sorts of death by 60%. So to all of you who are once-a-monthers, Harvard would say, you should up your game and start coming every single week. But there's something to that. See, God has hardwired each of us with this need for community. We find deep fulfillment and soul satisfaction when we're together with other believers. So the early church, they were committed to gathering in these large settings, in the temple courts, but also in their homes, around a table, eating a meal together, learning and growing, building friendships with one another, praying together, you know, that's why we do community groups as a church. We're taking cues from scripture, passages just like this. And the reality is, especially in a large church, it's so hard to build those kind of deep friendships, that life-on-life -life kind of discipleship. It's hard to do that if you only come to these large gatherings. These large gatherings are important as we worship together, as we sit under scripture, as we do communion together, and these things that are much easier to do in a larger corporate gathering. But it's also so important that you are known and that you really know other people, and that happens in community group. 
Jorley and I, I told you this last week, my wife and I, we, we launched a community group earlier this year and it has been so life-giving for us. There's something so powerful that happens when you open up your life to other people, when you eat together, when you tell stories and practice spiritual disciplines and laugh together, study scripture together, this kind of life-on-life community. It was essential to the early church and it should be essential to us if we're to, to walk out the Christian life all of our lives. Large group settings, also small group settings. Okay, maybe this is the point in the talk, in this message today, where you're feeling kind of jaded or even discouraged. Like, yes, this vision of the church that you're presenting sounds amazing, sounds wonderful, this devotion-based, learning, loving, liturgy kind of Christianity, but I've never seen it. I've been looking for that kind of community for years, but I've always struggled to find it. Maybe you're even here today at CA Church for the first time and you're hoping that this church finally will be the kind of church that meets your needs. That this will finally be the church that feels more like that Acts 2 kind of church that you've been seeking. I want to talk for a moment about expectations in community. One author shared this great framework that I think is so helpful in unpacking this. You can put it on the screens if you have it. See, taking part in a new community and a new church is often pretty exciting. You know, people come and they say like, wow, this is an amazing church. Like, I love the music and the worship and hearing everyone sing together. And, and the message feels like down to earth. And, and just like a, he's, he's one of us. And, and people were welcoming. Somebody greeted me at the door. And it was awesome. And so you have this great experience on your first time coming to church. And then oftentimes, people after a few weeks think, well, if the church is this great when it's together, maybe I'll try out community group. And so you go to a smaller gathering, to a community group. And that's oftentimes where disillusionment sets in. Maybe you say, like, you know, I thought I was going to go to this kind of sainthood of the believers. And this was, I was going to find these people who were going to fix me. But it turns out that they're exactly just like me. They're people who are messed up, who have problems and issues that they're walking through. And it gets messy. And oftentimes people stop right there. They hit that wall of disillusionment. And they never kind of move past it. But if you can move past that wall, and if you can recognize, maybe I have some idols even within my own self regarding community. Maybe I've kind of set this community up on a pedestal. If you can recognize your own stuff, then that is truly where you will find the kind of love, agape love that we see in the book of Acts. This kind of love, this deep love and devotion to one another. But a lot of people get stuck in disillusionment. A lot of people quit there. If you get past that point, you recognize, okay, I think I've made an idol out of community. I think I have some false expectations about people. But if you can get through all of those things, what you get to is this real New Testament love, agape love for one another, despite the mess of community and the differences. But you have to fight for it. You're not gonna get there accidentally. You're not gonna get there without commitment to one another, without devotion to Jesus and to his church. But unfortunately, what happens oftentimes, here's what happens to most people. You go to church, and you get in a group, you hit disillusionment like a wall, and so you start again. And so you get into a new group. You think, oh, I just got into the wrong group. This church is still awesome. I love the Sunday gathering, but I got the wrong group. So you go to a new group, and you experience disillusionment again. Oh, these are just ordinary people, and I'm not finding the fulfillment I'm, I'm after. And so you're kind of excited, well, I'll try out another group. And then oftentimes after that happens for a little while, then you say, I was wrong about this church. <laughs> it wasn't as great as I thought it was gonna be. And so you go to a new church. And you start the process again. Excitement, disillusionment. And most people's whole Christian walk, or a lot of people, is excitement, disillusionment, excitement, disillusionment. But if you can, if you stick it out and break through that wall of disillusionment, 
if you recognize your own stuff and the stuff of the people around you and commit anyways, devote yourself to them, you experience this true and genuine love, a New Testament church love, an agape love. Okay, let's look at a quote from Bonhoeffer. He says, every human idealized image that is brought into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be broken up so the genuine community can survive. Those who love their dream of Christian community more than Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. He says, God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their demands, set up their laws, and judge one another, and even God, accordingly. So here's the call. To recognize that we all bring our baggage and our drama and our sin and our imperfections into community, but to actually work through it together. To lean into community to be vulnerable enough to say, I've projected my needs onto you, and then to take those unfair expectations for one another and for your own self, and, and, and instead to prefer one another. To not, to not let our preferences drive us, but instead to commit. And it's in that place of deep commitment, of devotion, that we experience the kind of community that we actually long for. And it doesn't always look like a picture on a kinfolk magazine. Sometimes it's gritty and messy and it takes time and it's iron sharpens iron all the way. But if, if, if we're to, to survive in this Christian life, if we're to thrive in our Christian life, to grow in Christ-likeness, then we need each other. And it happens in community. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.